Triple Content Creations presents Disability After Dark, the podcast to shine a bright light on sex and disability with your host, Andrew Gerza. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability. Content warning. The opinions, language, and discussion expressed in Disability After Dark may be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Do you want to keep the conversation lit around sex and disability? Want to spark a conversation about something you heard on the show? Feel like shining some light on an issue that I haven't even thought of? You can do all that and get the inside scoop on what happens in my brain after dark by following me on Twitter at Andrew Gerza, that's A-N-D-R-E-W-G-U-R-Z-A. And be sure to use the hashtag DisabilityAfterDark all over your social media so we can shine light on sex and disability together. Hey guys, thanks for joining me for the latest episode of Disability After Dark. I'm so glad you're here, I'm so glad you clicked, and I'm so glad you want to have these conversations around sex and disability with me. This episode is not so much about the act of sex or talking about sex itself, In this episode, I talked to a friend of mine, Becca Bailey, about her activism around queerness, sex, and being a disabled queer woman herself. She's somebody who I met a couple years ago at a conference that I attended and spoke at in Illinois. She was one of the participants there, and we just kind of, she came to my lecture on sex and disability, and ever since then, we've kind of been in each other's orbits and just watching what each other does and she's somebody that I really kind of wanted to get to know better and wanted to talk to about sex and disability and her experience as a little person. I wanted to understand how queerness and her experience as an activist and her experience as a little person, I wanted to understand how all of those worlds collided for her and how they worked together and I also wanted to talk to her a little bit about sex and a little bit about you know, some funny, sexy things that happened to her as a little person. So we talk a little bit about that near the end. But really, this conversation talks about the importance of activism and queerness and disability and all of the things that we do to have ourselves be seen as disabled people are also acts of activism. And the conversation with Becca really solidified that for me and really made that something that I wanted to pay attention to. Just a quick little bio on Becca. She's 22, which when you hear the interview, you won't even believe. She's just so well-spoken and well-poised and very well aware of who she is. She also is the communications officer at Winona State University in Minnesota. She works a lot in student diversity offices. She's very, very funny. She's just a joy to talk to. Um... She's really big on the activism, which I think is important and key, and this is the whole point of this episode, which you'll hear all about. Um, and I'm not going to really do much more of a bio than that. I want to just kind of let you listen to the interview and hear us talk about queerness and activism together. So here it is, my interview with Becca Bailey right here on Disability After Dark. Becca Bailey, thank you so much for coming on Disability After Dark. It's so good to talk to you again. Thank you for having me. It's so, so we, You and I met 
almost two years ago now at a conference, the Mumble Tech, which is a Midwestern bisexual, lesbian, gay, transgender alliance. Was it alliance? Was it a alliance? I, I can't remember. I think so. Yeah. It was the Alliance College Conference in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, that's right. That's where it was. Yeah. Um, so I gave the audience a bit of a rundown about who you are, because I think you're so awesome, and I love what it is that you do, because <laughs> I see your social media posts all the time, and they're just the best. So tell, <laughs> why don't you just give a kind of rundown about who you are and what you're, what you're all about? Um, okay, I am a student at Winona State University. I study stage management and communications. Um, I identify as pansexual or queer disabled cis woman um i mean awesome you you forgot you forgot that you're awesome you forgot that part (laughs) (laughs) um and yet you also identify now i don't know if this is something you use as an identifier would you say based on your disability would you also identify as a little person yeah yeah Mm -hmm. okay that and i kind of want i kind of want to (laughs) just explore that a bit because you are the most prominent little person that I have talked to in person. Um, <laughs> so I want to understand from you, how does that, how does that, that identity affect your, and interplay with your queerness? Like, how does, where does all that fit? Or does um, it fit okay. for you? Yeah, so um, I identify as a little person. I have achondroplasia dwarfism, which is the most um, common or prominent type of dwarfism out of the hundreds that exist. Um, But I think on my journey of being queer and disabled definitely has changed and grown throughout the years. Uh, I think when I first started realizing that I was maybe not straight, I was like, "Uh, Becca, are you just trying to steal the spotlight from everyone? (laughs) Like, you you don't get to be not straight and little like how just much more pick, yeah pick like, how much more different can you be <laughs> yeah um but no I think now as an adult having both those aspects like be such a big part of my life obviously has kind of made me become an even better activist in a sense I think that because I'm so like heavily involved in both like disabled studies and queer studies and kind of like branching myself out to both communities. I think I've learned a lot about myself and a lot about being um, like a marginalized person in this society. And I think that it's helped me grow as an activist and as a general decent human. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think being both disabled and queer myself too, I, I get it. And it's tough because when you do disabled studies and you do queer studies, you realize really quickly that in both those streams, they don't talk about the other one. So if you're doing queer, right. if you're doing queer studies, they don't talk about disability. And generally, if you're doing disability studies, they don't talk about queer studies. But if you look at both populations, there's a huge like group of us that fall into both camps. So it's <laughs> like, I remember when I did gender studies, I, I took a gender studies course. And then I was also studying disability. And I was like, wait, what? all this stuff is really similar why aren't we talking about the same stuff? Yeah. Um, 
and so do you find like being and being um like a representative of a of a a school that you would want to see more like student activism around queerness and disability and like both those places um i think so yeah i think i mean um because right now i am the co-president for uh winona states um we call it full spectrum so they're um, sexuality Alliance. Um, and I think before kind of getting involved on the officer board, there was definitely a lack of sort of anything that wasn't white and gay Yeah, was sort of just never talked about. And I think, I mean, it's definitely come far in the last two years, probably we've started having more conversations and opening up like opportunities to discuss and learn more about other marginalized groups. But I think this year, particularly we learned kind of how important it was because so many, like you were saying, so many of these groups kind of have the same issues and the outcome that they all want is kind of generally the same. Yeah. I mean, we just want to be seen and we just want to, and we just want to be included, but yeah. in both groups. And so I find Sometimes when I go and do talks to disability groups, they won't bring up queerness. And I'll be like, "What? but wait, mm-hmm. they do intersect. Or I'll go to a queer group and they'll be like, oh, disability? I didn't realize that. Like, and I'll be like, wait, but that's why I'm here. Like, that's why they've hired me to come speak. So <laughs> I always feel kind of like awkward being the one person that's like, let's champion that. Let's talk about that. And so yeah, I think in a school setting, especially in an education setting, where, like, minds are being formed and ideas are being created and, like, this is essentially the melting pot where you're going to decide who's going to be a leader of tomorrow, pretty much. So, like, why aren't, like, being being so active in it, why do you think it's still something in the education system that we don't tackle? Um, I think, I think, like, there's just... A lot of it is probably fear of like the unknown. I mean, it's not like talking about a marginalized group is an easy thing to just kind of bring up. Yeah. And that's just because of societal norms. Yeah. And I think it definitely was seeing people who are either outside one or both disabled and queer communities that sort of tab almost as this people think it's taboo to talk about unless you're directly involved in it. Yeah, unless they have like a token person they can be like, oh, this is Andrew or this is Becca and they're both and they, so they can talk about right. it. Sure, but we can't, yeah. Um, yeah. And so with my stuff and with my, with my work, that's why I try to say, yeah, I, I'll be your token person to stand in there for you and like hold that space. But I also think that the rest of society needs to start being given not not necessarily permission but being given a chance and the opportunity to consider it outside of having a tokenized person do it for them mm-hmm. um, because I, I just think that it that it's really hard sometimes to be the only queer disabled person being like what about this what about this wait hi i i exist did you forget yeah. that like and that and I, I remember when i went to school when i was in school it was so tough saying well I'm in the queer center and I don't see myself anywhere or I'm in the disability center and I don't see anything about queerness anywhere I mean that's 
mm-hmm. slowly changing, but I think that it's there's still a lot of work to be done, and it's kind of cool that you, you know, are championing that. Again, it's exhausting work, I know, because I do the same thing, so it's exhausting work, but it's good it to is. have somebody in there doing it. Yeah, and I think along with it being exhausting, because we always say, um, where am I going with this? At the same time that, like, it's not a marginalized community, community's, like, job to teach yeah. others and to, like, tell everyone what's right or what's wrong, it almost kind of at times is and has to be. Yeah, I think that's I, – I, I have – I take issue when some disabled people spout off the rhetoric. It's not my job. Well, no, it's not, and you don't have to. And if you're feeling low about it today, I get it. Like, take your time and rest and don't do it today. But remember that you – if you don't do it, if, like, if I don't do the work I do, first of all, I'm out of a job, so that sucks. <laughs> Secondly, like, if I don't do it, am I ever going to get the inclusion that I'm seeking? Probably not. Right. So, right. I mean, it's really kind of important for me to, and I always see it as an opportunity. If I can, through a lecture, I mean, and you've seen my, you've seen what my lectures are like. So, if I can do that for one person, and in that lecture hall, one person will come up to me and go, oh, wow, thanks for that. Like, I, I never considered that, but now I'm starting to consider it differently. Like, I've done my job, and I'm done what, I've done what I'm supposed to do, and I, and I've hopefully change the change the viewpoint even just for that even just for like 24 hours if I can make people think about it differently then I've done my job right right yeah I think the it's a slippery slope when we start to say it's not our job yeah and it's just I don't know because as much as like no it's not and it's just something that everyone should constantly be like recognizing we have to start from somewhere in order for people to be constantly recognizing it. And I mean, I think the trouble with being queer and disabled, not the trouble, but the trouble with making people recognize it is that when we talk about queerness, it's flashy and fun and sexy and cool and exciting. And there's a lot of sex happening and there's, you know, typically in, for, for me as a queer man, there's a lot of sex happening all the time. And that's how people get drawn into that group, which is great. Right. Um, but then when you look at disability topics, it's so... I have to say, on the whole, when I look at disability stuff, I'm like, it's so sanitized. It's so clean. Yeah. It's so, like, let's only talk about access. And I'm always like, well, there's, wait, there's more to it than that. I yeah. think in, like, I'd love to see at a queer pride center, like, I don't know, pictures of somebody who's a wheelchair user or pictures of somebody who is whatever, without their shirt on, without their clothes on, being like, yep, here it is. Like, here's the deal. Right. And that's something that I think, like I remember when I did drag a million years ago, I went to my student queer center and I said, I want to do this. And they said, oh, we can't get you a ramp. We can't get you a ramp. And I was like, guys, you have to get me a ramp. It's, you know, it's part of your mandate. Otherwise, I will sue you for fucking discrimination. So you better get me a ramp. Right. They did. And I remember saying, I want to be on a poster. I want to be like on the on the thing. They didn't end up doing it because they were concerned about what people, they literally said to me, we're concerned what people will think. And I was like, people are going to be shocked. That's the point. That's why I want to do it. Please let me do it. <laughs> and so, like, I just think that if we're going to talk about queerness and disability, we need to, it needs to be sexier than what it is. And so with what I do, my whole goal is to be completely 
provocative, a little bit dirty, and a little bit uncomfortable. So people go, oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> like, there's a picture of you and your junk. Awesome. Because, like, when do we ever see that? Um, right. And, I mean, I just think even in terms of, like, disabilities, in terms of your particular disability as a little person, I don't, I don't, we don't see that unless it's, like, farcical or it's, like, somebody being an elf. Like, right now, it's holiday time. Somebody being yeah, an elf. Like it's holidays are in full swing. So like it makes me so uncomfortable, um, because I know some little people and I, like just as somebody living with a disability myself, it's like are we still it's twenty sixteen and we're still doing this? This is still a, like a source of of like we of like weird discrimination that we ha- haven't been able to really get over. Um, yeah. My tangent that I just went off on was basically to say though that also like in terms of sexual representation, we don't see I mean we don't see people with disabilities generally but I think in terms of your disability I haven't even I haven't seen like a little person in a sexy magazine in a we're just scratching the surface of like wheelchair users showing their right. sexiness in magazines and so which is great but I think we're missing again such a subset of like I, I feel bad that I just said subset that's not what I mean I just mean another group of us that right yeah right See, even sometimes I fuck up, guys. <laughs> um, I just feel, I feel like, like I'd love to see like a picture of you in, you know, and I've seen, that's why I love your social media feed because it reminds me that like, again, that's what I said at the beginning, you're, you're one of the most prominent little people that I know because I always see your stuff and you, you don't, you don't necessarily like constantly talk about how you're a little person, but just by being in spaces with, with, People who are right. not, I, I think you hold a really good space, and you make people people think about that experience differently. Yeah, and I think, and yeah, going back to like sex as a topic, it's it is interesting to see like how opposite queerness and disability are in regards to sex as a topic. Because, I mean, the queerness started in clubs and like clubs is it it's a part of sex culture yeah and disability has just never been considered not only sexy but something involved in sex culture yeah it's i mean even when we do talk about disability in in or sex and disability culture even when those topics are brought up like I'm just like, guys, for some for, for some reason, even if you're doing, like, I've seen, like, sexability or sex on wheels, and I'm like, guys, there's, you can play with it differently, like, could you, could we not move past sexability? It's really, like, there's other stuff, like, you could use, which is why all of my work, like, like, I, I do Disability After Dark now, and I did Deliciously Disabled before, um, all of that stuff had disabled in it, because I don't necessarily think that we always should be talking about ability. Um, And I think ability, whenever you put ability in something related to disability, I think it removes the disabled experience from the experience. Yeah. I just think that it's, like, I I just have a real issue when I see people like, oh, sexability or sex language. I'm like, somehow somehow you've unintentionally bastardized what it is that you're trying to do. And right. you've whitewashed your own, you whitewashed <laughs> like you you've ta- you've taken out the whole meaning of this stuff. So like, I and I just think in terms of like, 
disability representation like I love. I don't know if you saw the hashtag a few, maybe last year, a few months ago. It was disability too white. And I just was like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> because like, yes, I am a disability activist and I do this work. I'm a reluctant activist. Like I, I'm, I run away from the activist work because I get, I get worried about what people think about as a disabled activist. Actually, let me ask you that question. So you initially right away were like, I'm an activist. Here's my, like, right, as soon as we started our conversation today, you were like, I'm an activist. If somebody were to ask me, and I've been asked, so are you like a section disability activist? And I go, uh, well, I guess I am, but I'm also scared of that because I think people, when they think activist, they think like you're going to be angry and disabled all the time. How do you tackle that? Um, I mean, because I, sometimes I am angry and disabled and I put that out there. Yeah. And that is what I do. But I think, but no, activist does have a negative connotation about it now. And I think for me personally, how I see the phrase activist is just, I think being queer and disabled and speaking about being queer and disabled is enough to almost be an activist because it's something that's so far removed from any everyday discussions Yeah. that half the time just being there and using your voice is enough to make somebody else say, whoa, here's yeah. a part of this thing that we've never even thought about. But I think also when you can and when it's safe speaking against things that are maybe not okay is another part of being an activist. I think there's always times and situations where it's probably not safe too. And that doesn't mean that you should feel bad for not doing it. It just means you had to protect yourself. Yeah. And I think that kind of gets lost when we use the word activist because so many people are so afraid of the negative connotation about it. Yeah, and I mean, I agree. I agree with that part, but I, I also have de- have have dealt with and seen disabled activists who are angry, and they have a right to be, and I think they totally do. And I'm angry too, but I think the way you utilize your anger is really important. And I think a lot of activists or people who claim the activist um, title don't aren't. They're so angry that it, like, seeps from their pores. And it's like, I get you're angry, but why don't you turn it into, like, a brand or turn it into something that people are going to be able to access? Because Disability After Dark and all the stuff that I do as a disability awareness consultant was because I was angry that I didn't see myself. I didn't see... I wasn't represented. I got pissed off. And I was like, okay, I could sit and write a bunch of angry articles about how I'm not being seen. Or I could have fun with it and play with it. Um, Yeah. So in your activism work, like... I see you do stuff all the time and you're like always happy and always smiling and always doing cool stuff. And that as a viewer of that stuff, I am more apt to be like, okay, I will click on her thing. Cause it's not, I'm an angry, like I'm an angry disabled person. I think the media is more when the media looks at us as queer disabled people. Like if, if whenever I've been in a queer disabled magazine, they'll want me to be over-sexualized or, like, super angry about how I'm not getting laid. And I'm like, well, yeah, I could give you that story, but no one's going to want to click on that. Right. They want to click on, like, Happy Andrew or, like, Andrew that's, you know, 
I think the media has a problem when it comes to disabled narratives where they want to see the angry disabled person, which is why when people ask me if I'm an activist, I'll, I'm like, uh, I guess so. Like, yeah, but... Yeah, yeah. Because... And I think... Because the- there's some... I, it goes, and it differs for a, any and every disability, because it's like you either get only the, like, angry, pissed-off, disabled person, or you get the article written all about this disabled person with zero of this disabled person's, like, actual thoughts and feelings put yeah. into it. Yeah, and that's, like, such... that. I mean, that's why I love this podcast and the other one I just created, because I think that we don't hear enough of people with disability, their story. We hear their story. We hear it through such a... Uh, myopic like narrative that it's so watered down and it's so unrealistic and it's like it's just like what what does the person really have to say um so speaking on that what so like I want to shift gears to some sexier topics because activism is sexy and you and I proved that but I want to go right into sex so (laughs) that was was a horrible segue but um (laughs) so I know for me as a wheelchair user, sex and disability comes with a whole bunch of stuff. As somebody with your disability, like do do you encounter some of the typical questions that like I would encounter like, oh like so how do you do that? Or like is it possible? Is that something that still you're still faced with? Um I think I definitely did not so much now and I think I mean I feel right now I'm kind of in a spot in my life where I'm very much myself and I have explored sex and sort of like what it means to be like a confident person in their sex life. But I think with the kind of questions like, Oh, can you do that? Does that work for you? They also, because um, I am a woman and that is how I like present myself. I think a lot of the questions are almost, like maternal like they kind of they go in branches of like the future and children and they're like well if you do this can can you do this are like are you going to be pregnant can you so get you're, pregnant you're immediately expected because of your your gender to be to be to consider what it mean what it would mean to be a queer little person and a mother right without like wow i that's not that i wouldn't even consider that like I considered if you wanted to have kids, I'd be like, sure, great. But I wouldn't, that's not, that isn't where my question, my line of questioning would go if I was an ignorant person that didn't understand how sex and disability, <laughs> like, so how do you feel, like, like, tackling, like, what do you say when someone's like, so, like, can you have kids? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, it's just, it's, because it's so weird how it gets to that question. Because it's like, whoa, we were talking about something totally different. Because, I yeah. mean, sex doesn't obviously have to mean... Kids, yeah. Kids. And it's it's like a huge leap. And it's kind of like, uh, do you see me as just a woman now? Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, you started off seeing me as someone who's disabled who might not be able to have sex, but now you see me as a woman who might not be able to have kids. And somehow, and like, it's so weird because in my head, as soon as you said that, my brain went to, so somehow you're less viable 
because you are depriving the world of possible futures because you can't have kids because you're just and like I'm, and I've I've been asked similar questions about like my sexual ability. No, nothing is like personal as that. Thank goodness. But like, wow, I can imagine. I can imagine that like you in that span of thirty seconds where this weird like micro these, these weird questions are being thrown at you. How like you're standing there with this person being like, what am I supposed like? Tell me how you. So like I'm interested to know like you said a couple minutes ago that like how you get from one question how you get from like questions about something totally different to this question. Can you kind of like run down like a chart of like okay so we're just chatting and then like where do I how do I get from we're just chatting to <laughs> to will you repopulate the earth. I mean, whenever, because whenever it gets that far, I'm like, okay, whoa, whoa. And I just kind of have to take a minute for myself because it's always, I mean, the response is, it's going to be generally the same, but it's always a different situation. And so, I mean, I tend to just immediately take out the kids factor because kids is not on my mind yet because I'm a 22 year old woman. And that's, so it's kind of like, yes, sure, I can probably have kids, but that's not... That's like... We don't uh, need to talk about it because I'm not having them now. Yeah, like, also, I can't believe you're 22. Like, I, I still... I'm just like, how old are you still? Like, no, you're not. Because <laughs> I just... Because I remember when I met you, we met at this conference, and I just immediately was like, this person's got it? Like, what? This person's got it. And so <laughs> when, I remember we talked after, and you were like, oh, yeah, I'm 20. I was like, I don't... What? No, you're not. <laughs> You're not. So, like, I think it's really... And also, like, when I was 22, if somebody had asked me about kids, I would have been like, I just want to get laid. Like, I don't know. Like, thanks, but no. And so, like, the fact that you have gone through, like, so much of that self-discovery at such a young age. Like, I'm 32, and I'm still like, what? How do I? (laughs) I'm not sure how to do this. So, like, um, and I want to get I want to ask you some, like, really sex-related questions, and I'm, so, like, in terms of, like, okay, so, I've been asked a bunch of embarrassing questions in the act of sex because of my disability. Is that something that you experienced, or is that something that you're, like, or you have experienced? Um, I think I definitely, I definitely have. I don't know if I have at all recently, just because I think now, I just kind of, I'm not shy about it. And so I just kind of like lay it all out there before anything even happens. And it's sort of like, I'm like, here's the deal. Yes, everything works. Everything's like, it's fine. And like, as a consenting woman, like, this is what you need to know so that you don't ask dumb questions later. (laughs) (laughs) It's so hard getting to that place where you can like stay to your your partner, especially for me as a queer man, typically, you've just met your partner on some app, like, you, we've, like, they're coming over in 20 minutes, and you have to, like, decide, okay, how am I gonna do this, and, like, how am I gonna make them comfortable, but also, you have to, like, get ready for their dumbass questions that they don't mean to ask, to make dumb, but they're, they are just genuinely curious, so, yeah. like, there's gonna be a future episode that I'm recording, actually, today or tomorrow, where I literally 
go like I go over the five things I wish people would stop asking me as a queer man in the bedroom. Well, it's gonna be it's gonna be a really interesting and like crazy episode because the things I'm gonna ask I can't even tell you, um, <laughs> but I will uh, <laughs> later. Um, but yeah, I just think it's so hard when you just like you, that we always have to lay it out there, and I think that's where people with disabilities get so tired because it's like you know what sometimes I just want to be. I, just, I don't want you to have all these questions. And I, or if you have them, I'd like you to pretend like you don't have them right now. Mm-hmm. And that's frustrating. That's like, that makes me like really, really super uncomfortable. Um, because I know if I had a partner with a disability, I'd have all the same questions. But right. some, sometimes you just don't, you don't like, I don't have the energy to, in the middle of my sex play, to stop and be like, well, actually, this is what, like, it's, or even sometimes before, and I've done what I refer to as storyboarding, and I've I've done all that, and I do do that with partners. But even sometimes before, you're like, gee, how would this look in, like, a porn situation? Like, would do people do this? Like, this is not what people do. Sometimes you just want it to be, like, not there. And it's frustrating when you have to constantly consider the pre-conversation before the sex. Right, right. And, yeah, I think... I think, personally, I don't know. Sometimes the conversations just lead to me thinking too much into it in the act. Because I'm like, well, I answered all these questions, but, like, they still probably have them. And does this look weird? Is this weird? Like, if I was an outsider, wow, this would probably be weird. If I was not a queer disabled woman and I saw this, this would be weird. Yeah. Do yeah. they think that way? I think people forget, like, there's a whole bunch of questions that even once you've done the preliminary talk and the person says, oh, yeah, it's cool, don't worry about it, inside our heads, as we're engaging in the act of sex, it, these questions are rolling over your mind the whole time. And so it takes a lot to, like, disconnect from your own discomfort around what you think people are going to be thinking about what you're doing and just enjoy the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's something that is, is really, and that's something we don't talk about enough. Like, sure, I can tell you what I want, but I typically don't tell you, or I can tell you what I need to. I can lay out all the disability stuff, but I typically don't tell you that during the sex, I'm freaking out the whole time. Like, I typically don't lay out that I'm having, I'm like basically having a like internal panic attack because I want to, I, I want to talk to you about this, but I can't because of, because I feel like there's societal pressure for me not to. Right, right. Um, and that's that's something that 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 I just think we need to eradicate. We need to start talking about sex with our partners during the sex, because otherwise, I mean, not no, you don't have to like stop in the middle and have a whole conversation. <laughs> but there needs to be like, I think communication, and this can sound so cliche and so like sex educatory, but I think. Um, I think that we need to start talking about what it is that we want and what it, especially as disabled people, what it is that scares us about sex. Because mm-hmm. typically we are the ones on the other end of it who who are dealing with an able-bodied person typically who is scared and we're the ones that's supposed to come in and be like, it's okay, sex and disability are cool, which is great, but no one's really asking us, like, what are we scared of? Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, 
Like, do and do you do you find also as a queer woman, like I know as a queer man, there's a lot of stuff around body image that I have to contend with, and there's a lot of stuff around, um, like is he does he is he fuckable? Is he like down to do things? Is he like attractive enough? And there's a whole slew of like body dysmorphic shit that goes on when you're a queer guy. Um, mm-hmm. As a as a pansexual queer woman, do you feel like that? that there's an equal amount of weight on you to look a certain way? Um, I don't know. I think with my disability in particular, maybe not. I don't, at least not noticeably, like, enough for me to, that's not necessarily, like, on my radar as often. I think that... Because I, seeing, like, queer male and men culture and, like, queer female or femme-representing culture, like, there's definitely huge differences in, like, opinions and, and ideas on body image. And I totally see that. And I don't think that, as a pansexual woman, that's ever been something that I've needed to like take a second glance at or a second thought about. Yeah. I don't think that that's ever been, I don't know, something I feel, I mean, body image in particular, I kind of, from the start, I was like, well, my body image is a lot different than a lot of other people's. So I don't think the typical body image questions ever really came to mind with me. Because you realized from an early, really early age that your body was just... Yeah, it's not going to be the norm ever. Yeah, so I did a, an episode a few weeks ago where I talked about like my experience as a queer, crippled teenager. Um, and I'm just curious, as, a, as a, you know, a little person, kind of when you go through all those weird, awkward moments in high school, like, I remember feeling really ostracized because I was, I was a kid in a chair. Um, did, it, did that experience, did you feel like high school was positive for you or did you feel like, you know, because you go, again, you're going through growth spurts, but you know, as a, as a little person that your growth spurts, not, you're not going to go through the same exact changes as your peers because right. of all that stuff. So do you feel like, okay, my body's changing, but it's not changing in, in like the same way or were you just like, oh yeah, this is happening. Like, it sounds like from what you just said about how you always knew your body would kind of be different. You're just like, yeah, this is what, this is what it'll be. Like, I guess I'm, I think, yeah, I mean, high school for the most part was pretty positive. I don't, and I think a lot of that just goes back to how I was raised. I mean, both my parents are little as well, and so from the start I was told, well, this is who you are, this is a part of you, and that's something that is not going to change. And so I think the way I was raised, I was just kind of said, well, it's what you have, go with it. Yeah, and. Yeah don't be okay with it and be sad and mopey all the time or be completely fine with it and embrace it. And but I, I think, because I didn't, I didn't know, I hadn't really realized that I fell anywhere on the queer spectrum until college. I think that when I was in high school, I kind of always said, maybe, but it wasn't any sort of urge or thought that came to mind that I was like, oh, wow, maybe I am. It was just kind of like, maybe one day I would find a woman that I would 
like, but it was never like, yeah, I probably will. Yeah, it so wasn't you, until yeah. college that I was like, okay, I'm definitely at least a little bit gay. My experience was like way different than as soon as I, as soon as I, as soon as I realized that I was queer, I was like, yep, this is the thing that I, yep, this is what <laughs> needs to happen immediately because it needs to. Um, and so do you, I'm just curious in terms of the, of the queer population, are there other, have you, have you interacted with a lot of other queer people who identify as little people too? Um, I, uh, dated a woman for two years and she's little as well and gay. Um, and through her, I kind of met a few others, but far, far and few between, I think. And maybe have like a handful of friends who would identify somewhere on the queer spectrum as well as being little. I just feel, feel like, I, like we were talking earlier about representation. Like, I just feel like if there was a bigger avenue for disabled queerness to be talked about, I'm sure that other little people, other people with differing levels of disabilities or differing levels of dwarfism or differing levels of whatever it is, would come out and be like, yeah, cool, I'm here too. And so I think what you're doing, like, through your social media feeds and through your work at the school, just by being out there and being, like, being, again, a prominent little person who's queer, I think that's just so important because the representation is so lacking. Like, even sometimes when I do stuff, I'm like, I'd like to see other people like me up here doing what I'm doing. Even mm-hmm. as a speaker, like, when I came in to do Mumble Tech, I loved that they asked me. It was great. But from what I remember, I was, like, the only, I was, like, aside from having some participants there, I was one of the only disabled people giving a talk. And I was like, but wait, there's so many more of us. Like, why can't this be a thing? Right, right. Yeah, I think, yeah, just and it, because as of right now, prominent voices that are queer and disabled are far and few between. It's only when we who can and are able to and will use like our lives and our platforms to show that that will that more will be out and use their voice with it totally um i wanted i read an article recently about and since since we've talked a lot about activism in this episode i wanted to ask you about i read an article about Trump the other day, which I wasn't super happy to read, but there it was. I read an article basically that said disabled people will, disabled queer people will die under Trump because of his policies and his, and I agree with that to some point. How do you, now that it's like less than a month away before he actually becomes president, which is terrifying to say the least. Um, how do you feel, like how do you feel as a queer pansexual woman navigating all that stuff and knowing that you you live a very prominent disabled life, and now with him being in office, both your queerness and your disability could become an issue. Right. Um, and I mean, we all remember election night. We all were there. We all had our moment to kind of be sad. We were, we're all able to take our time and be sad and be mad and be... Yeah, a whole array of emotions, but I think that now I've had my time to like wallow in it and feel my emotions about it. But I think now more than ever, 
being a prominent queer disabled person, I, I, I can't stop because if I do, there's who knows how many other people who are maybe seeing my things and maybe like being positively affected by what I'm saying, who's back in the shadows again, if I stop. Yeah. And I think that because there wasn't necessarily, I didn't growing up, I didn't have a queer disabled person in my life to kind of show me the ropes or teach me things until I was in college when I met others. But I think that knowing there's somebody else who's going to fall under the same sort of communities I do, who I, maybe is too scared right now, yeah, will need me. But might see what you're doing and then, you know, fight like for the next four years to make sure that disability, disability stuff doesn't get cut and um, like queer arts things don't get cut and all these things that Trump's cabinet is trying to take away. Like I'm, I'm up in Canada. I'm not entirely safe because Canada's really close to you guys. So I'm not entirely safe, but I'm looking at this stuff going, oh, fuck. As a disabled queer person, like, I'm, if I live down there, and I'm, I was born in the States, if I live down there now, I would be like, wow. Um, it's just, it's scary to think, like, that this kind of activism is so needed. And as much as I abhor Trump and I wish he wasn't in, and I just can't believe that it's even happening, I also... I see it as not not the whole thing as a positive, obviously, but it, it's reaffirming the fact that our activism is so vital and it's so necessary. Yeah. So it's so required, and so like that's why what I do, what I do, like that's why I have two podcasts now, and I open up another channel, and I start doing more, and I have a you know Patreon stuff because I think disabled people working for themselves in media and in digital content and and leveraging the fact that they have disabilities and making that part of their job is something that I think, and I'm going to kind of shift gears from Trump just to talk about like generally talking about being queer and being disabled and turning that into your work, I think is so necessary because people assume that we as queer disabled people should either be queer and not, and just be that or just be disabled. But when it comes to making those two things a job, I've had people say to me, oh, what you're doing is just a hobby. It's cool, though, but it's not real work. And I'm like, but actually it is because I've made it that. So do you feel a sense of pride that you can work in an environment where you can show that and say to other queer disabled people or just disabled people generally, like, look, I'm using my disability in part to create an employment opportunity for myself? Um, yeah, and I think, yeah, I, because what, what I do as others will see as a hobby, like, is, I think for me, a means of surviving, not, not only a job, but I think if I didn't do what I did, there'd be too much of me, like, so buried deep, that it'd be unhealthy. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, again, that's why, that's why five years ago now, I started doing what I do because I needed I needed an outlet and I was like oh maybe this will be a thing and then I started branding myself as who I am and now it's become this thing where I can gain recognition and I can gain all this stuff and all oh, that's nice but people forget that this is like this is a, a point of survival for me this is like I need this to be okay um, and I think that 
a lot of queer disabled people just don't see themselves. And that's why I'm so excited whenever I see your stuff because I'm like, yeah, she's doing it. That's awesome. Like your stuff is so, you look so happy. And I like it that it doesn't, unlike mine, mine is like in your face. I'm definitely disabled. Here it is. Your stuff talks like that, but it isn't, it's a little bit, I don't want to say lighter because I don't want to take away from what it is that you're doing. But I mean, it's not as like, I don't think you attack it in the same way that I do. I don't see you saying like, oh yeah, I'm a little person. Whereas I'll say like, oh, I'm super crippled and super disabled. Let's talk about that. But like you can, your sense of um, who you are and what you do is tied into each other. But I like that it's in a, how do I say this? It's in a quieter way. Not quieter as in like you're not working hard to get it done. No, right. But quieter from, from a, like, I don't know what the next word that I want to say is, but you know what I mean? It's quieter yeah. because it doesn't, it's not as aggressive as sometimes I can be with my stuff. I, I like that because it lends itself to, it's comfortable for both you to do because it's just part of who you are and it's comfortable for an audience to, to see that and be like, okay, yeah, she's talking about disability, but she isn't really, but she is. My dog snuck in the room and now I can't get out. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but yeah, I think, and I think part of me being um, quieter comes from, um, I think that in college, because I'm one of the few disabled students on campus, it was sort of like anything I said about disability, anyone thought was aggressive. Yeah. Like, even if I was just saying, hey, I'm disabled, <laughs> that was aggressive to people because th there wasn't other people with disabilities using their voices or being heard by others. Or being and able so I to, think yeah. A part of um, me being quiet was also because I was... I didn't want to you get that negative connotation with the word activist. Yeah. The same. When we go back to that, because I think I've had plenty of people that are like, we get you, but like, you're kind of scary. And I was like, well, then deal with my scariness because here I am. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sorry. Like, but I, have, I mean, I have kind of catered to able-bodied or straight people saying, well, what you're saying is a lot and it's a little bit terrifying to us. Do you get that same sense in like sexual relationships or like romantic relationships where like because of our disabilities and I, I speak from experience myself, when I'm into somebody because I'm disabled and I've been so marginalized in the romantic sexual like realm of things, when I'm into somebody I'm really, really, I'm a little bit intense. I'll admit that I'm pretty, I'm kind of, super intense about all the things all the time because I like the idea of somebody liking me so I'm all like I freak out about it do you feel sometimes people have been like whoa you're intense like you're big, big, like whoa yeah yeah I think that intense is not a word that people would shy away from when describing me <laughs> uh I think and especially in like a romantic setting I'm gonna lay it out I'm not I'm not gonna be shy I'm gonna say okay this is you, and I am me, and this is how I feel about you. You can feel the same way or not, but I think it's important for you to know. Yeah. And, I and think sometimes people are like, 
why are we having this conversation? Like, and, this is weird. And you're like, because I have to, because I need, like, I feel the same way. I often need to be, not validated, but I need to say it so that it's made clear that this is, we're not, because I think sometimes people with disabilities, when they enter romantic relationships or even attempt to go on dates or do all this stuff, there's this, like, hidden assumption that you're not really going to go on a real date. You're just doing, like, you're just going with this person because they it's, it's a nice thing to do. And sure, you want to go have a coffee? Sure. So, like, I feel like it's very necessary for me to to categorize what we're doing as a date or as a hookup or whatever it is so that I can make clear to the other person that I have sexual or romantic interests. And I want to make mm-hmm. sure that by calling it this, you do too. Yeah, and I think, yeah, especially, I mean, recently just kind of becoming like, a confident, sexually active person, um, that is a conversation that I have right away. I'm like, okay, this is what we've done. What are we going to do? And people are scared <laughs> with that conversation. They're, they're terrified. And I don't, I, I mean, I get it. But at the same time, I think that that sort of sit down conversation should always be happening. Yeah. I think the fact that we, that we quote, blow people's minds because of our honesty and people are afraid of that speaks so much more to how afraid we are societally, generally, to talk about commitment and to talk about, no, I mean, I'm not saying that I want a partner tomorrow, but I'm saying like, just to talk about if I'm going to sleep with you or if we're going to hang out, I'd like to know who it is that I'm doing that with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just had a conversation the other day, actually. I was like, okay, are we, what are we doing? And he was like, what kind of question is that? What do you mean? And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just told, like, why are you the one that's lost? I just told you everything. (laughs) You just have to answer my one question. Yeah, my one question. Um, So I wanted to kind of quickly shift gears and ask you about pansexuality, because I've heard the term before, and I kind of know what it means. But I want, I would like, if you don't mind, to explain to me and to the audience what that means for you and how that, mm-hmm. af- how pansexuality affects you as a, as a disabled person. Okay. Um, yeah, I think when I first was coming out, I did not know what pansexuality was. And I just kind of figured, I was like, oh, I think I'm bisexual. And I was having a conversation with a friend. And I was kind of just learning. It was so fresh after coming out that I was just kind of learning everything. And I, a lo- I feel that pansexual, pansexuality to me is sort of the. I don't know if I want to, if capacity is the right word, maybe not. But like the capacity to have physical and or romantic relationships with anyone, regardless of their gender or lack thereof. Yeah. Because I think when I was first kind of learning, bisexuality to me was I'm attracted to males or I am attracted to females. Yeah. And one of my first queer sort of relationships was with someone who was transitioning. And it was kind of like I didn't know what was respectful for them to identify as. Right. And so pansexual to me just kind of 
made more sense because it was broader and less sort of at least it's less sort of polarizing and then you then yeah because because even in society bisexuality is so polarized it's invisibilized like it's something that we don't it's part of the lgbtq community but it's it's the letter it's the one letter aside from i think you know transness that often gets ignored um Mm -hmm. and i just think it's unfortunate that when when People, I've had friends that say, "Oh, I'm bisexual," and then I have, a, I have, a, I've had other friends say back to them, "Oh, no, you're not. You're just on a, you're on a sliding scale." And it's like, well, maybe no. I, I'm actually telling you that I like both sexes, but I think pansexual is also important because if you are with somebody who doesn't identify with either gender and you still want to respect them and you still want to be with them romantically or sexually, you then have terminology that respects all of that. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I think part of it maybe, I think it's safe for me to say that when I was first learning how I identified, part of me was erasing that bisexuality. I think that even then I was, because I knew it was so, like, stigmatized in society, I was afraid to use it for myself. Right. Because it's something we've just, we've just, I think we in the queer community have actively erased because mm-hmm. we're so concerned about which, and I think that, I think it boils down to the overall like years and years of oppression the queer community has faced because the reason why we, we pick um, male or female is because we want, not necessarily because we don't believe in pansexuality or bisexuality, but it's because we want, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think it's partly because we want to um, have a group that we belong to and have a group that we have agency in and we feel safe in and loved in. And I think that when you take out, uh, take out all those barriers, it scares people because then, then you're opening it up to, oh, you don't look like me, but you're part of my group? What? How? So I think that it makes people uncomfortable. And so when, when, somebody, when somebody has the you know, the the guts to be like, actually, I don't fit into any of this. I think it's it's a big step forward, but it's something the queer community and the disabled community has a lot to, um, has a lot of work to do because I think that there are not a lot, there are not a lot of, of disabled people who identify as pansexual, at least mm-hmm. not, not that I've talked to. Um, I think queer has become an umbrella term that we use to like identify all that stuff, but I think when you have again the guts to say actually this is what it is this is what I really feel and this is my my the title that I am choosing for myself it's I think really powerful especially as a disabled person because so many so many titles have been put on us like disabled was given to us without us really asking for it um uh you know I have taken that cripple for myself that's a term that I use quite openly and I'm very proud of that um but again that's a title that we weren't that wasn't ours initially. And so when you, as a disabled person, take agency over your title and take agency over your, over your identity like that, it's a huge, I think it's a big deal. And it's so important. It's something the queer community hasn't, has yet to really accept, I think too. Right. Right. I think, yeah. Um, just reiterating, having a label, regardless of what it is for yourself is sometimes, so empowering and I think because labels themselves have negative 
like views on them because everyone's like, oh, no labels. But I think sometimes labels are so important. Yeah, I think they're, I think they, I think self-identity and an understanding of who you want to be versus who society sees you as for our own, as queer disabled people who are so marginalized within both groups to actively say this is who I am is an act, it's a political act that we can't forget is happening mm-hmm. and should be happening way more. Um, so I want to I wanna just ask you one last thing. I want to ask you, um, do you have any funny, awkward, or strange sex and disability stories as a pansexual queer little person? Um, I, I mean, I'm sure I do. Um... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I was um, with a guy, and I don't know, we'd been hooking up for a while or whatever, but there was just one night where, like, he was over, and I I don't know if I just, like, forgot that I was little. I mean, I tend to do that sometimes. <laughs> I, like went down on my knees and I was like wait it didn't have to do that and now it's not (laughs) and I think because I mean that that story in particular because the concept of me being a woman who doesn't need to go on her knees is something that like has been over sexualized all of my life yeah so I think that story and just kind of being able to find the humor in that was almost helpful. Yeah. Because like, I just kind of sat there and laughed at myself. <laughs> but it was I, something that, like, for so long had made me so irrationally upset whenever people would say that. Well, because they'd, pro- I, they'd probably say it in that stupid, like, jocular way people say, like, hey, you don't have to go on your knees. Awesome. And it's like, well, fuck you. Like, why, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Why do you need to say it like that? And so, I mean, that that's one. <laughs> that's, I mean, the visual that's in my head right now is pretty hilarious. <laughs> like, I can just see you down there ready to give, you know, an, an awesome blowjob. Be like, oh, wait. And it'll have to. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, wait, now it makes me lower to the ground and it's harder for me to actually do the thing. That I'm supposed- <laughs> but, I mean, and the reason why I asked that story is because I think these stories and these, like, comedic, disability sex stories that's part of what I actually want to do with this podcast is when I ever have a guest at the end of the show ask them like a dirty disability like funny sex story because I think these stories are so often like invisibilized and removed from Mm -hmm. the narrative that typically we're supposed to if we're talking about sex and disability we're supposed to be sad and we're supposed to be like upset and all the same old tropes that we all hear all the time but I want to show through these stories that people with disabilities have rich, funny, and awkward sex like, stories. And so in my last episode that I did, uh, that I that came out, by the time this airs, it'll be a few weeks since. But it, I talked about all my awkward sex stories. And so <laughs> the fact that you share one is so awesome because people get to hear like the funny shit that happens to us that no one else gets. So I really appreciate the, that you we're willing to share that a little bit because I mean the visual now will be in my head forever. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's too funny. Um, 
But how can people get a hold of your work and like how can how do can people get a hold of you? Um, I think the easiest is probably Facebook. I'm always there and I'm always posting on Facebook. Um I have what do I have? I remember seeing in the form you sent me of Twitter. I have a Twitter. Twitter. I have two Twitters right. actually. Twitter I have two handles. Twitters and two Instagrams. <laughs> One of your Twitter handles is hilarious. Uh, my Twitter handle is poopatrader sixty nine. Um, <laughs> I wish that I knew where that nickname came from because it's been like a thing of mine for like five years now, and I don't know. One day I was just like fucking around on the computer by myself, and I was like, "That's funny. I'm gonna use it for." I'm gonna use. And people are like, "What the fuck is wrong with you? Like, that's not even funny. It's just kind of gross." And I was like, "No, fucking hysterical." So funny. Um, So yeah, that's my Twitter, and then my other Twitter is just. uh, What is my other? Oh, my other Twitter is for when I'm drunk. Awesome. Everybody should have a drunk Twitter. They should. I honestly, it's a game changer. <laughs> um, Becca, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. You, I, I still can't believe you're, you're still so like I just talking to you. I can't believe you're as young as you are. Boggles <laughs> my mind. Like when I was talking about people like the future of tomorrow, like you're gonna be one of like the prominent disabled people who's gonna like change the game. And that's awesome, and you're just so, you're so fun to talk to, and um, I'm just I love having you on. Well, I'm always here. Thank you for letting me on today. Of course, uh, you should. I shameless plug. I have another <laughs> podcast where we just talk about disability in society, uh, and I would love to have you as a guest on there at some point. So we'll talk it over. We'll talk about stuff, and we'll see what comes up because I think your voice um, and talking about the stuff you do in an educational context is like just so important. And you're from, you know, you're from, you're in a, correct me if I'm wrong, you're in a Midwest state, right? Maybe mid sort of. Yep, Minnesota. Yeah, so it's a very different cultural like discussion around disability than than it is in say like a bigger city like New York or like Boston or like even Toronto. Mm -hmm. The the context, I remember even being in Illinois when we were there a couple years ago, the way the disability was looked at was so different than I'd ever seen before. Because I was like, wow, it's so small town. Like, this is not, this is not how a big city would handle disability. Like, wow, okay. <laughs> um, so I, I'd love to have you on that podcast to talk about all that stuff. And it, you, I just think your voice is so needed. And you're just, you're awesome. And I just, I'm so happy you were here. Thank I can't you. gush about you enough. You're just great. <laughs> um, so thanks so much for being here. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Bye. The blowjob story where Becca realized that she didn't have to kneel down because, well, she was already down there, was one of my favorite stories so far. I also love how passionate she is about her activism and how aware she is that her space as a pansexual, queer, disabled little person and a woman are all very important things, especially... I also like how in the interview... We talk a little bit about Trump and how kind of terrifying it is that for people with disabilities, Trump is going to be the U.S. president now. And that's, you know, that that makes our identities as queer, disabled people 
even more important, and the activism we do even more vital. And so I loved talking with her about that. I loved talking with her about her experiences in the student activism system and all the things that she'd like to see. Rebecca Bailey, Becca Bailey is an important voice in our queer disabled pantheon, and I think she's somebody you should all pay attention to. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and you enjoyed what we talked about and you enjoyed hearing about disabled activism and I hope you realize that disabled activism is so much more than just talking about access. Thanks for listening to this episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast to shine a bright light on sex and disability. This episode of Disability After Dark is a handmade piece of crippled content created just for you. Please help us create more episodes and support crippled content creation by heading over to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash andrewgerza. Your monthly pledge goes towards things like audio equipment, podcast hosting subscriptions, and everything we need to bring this disability-centered program to you. By pledging your support, you are showing that disability content has value, means something, and deserves a place in our media landscape. Thank you for supporting this podcast. So hey, did you love this episode of Disability After Dark, but didn't quite get your crip fix? I have some fantastic news for you. Crippled Content Creations presents a new podcast, Disability with Drew bringing disability to you. This brand new series will look at disability society and disability culture. We'll look at the everyday experiences of people with disabilities and ask, how does disability feel? By bringing disability with Drew to you, I want disability to be something we all have access to. Episodes of Disability with Drew will be available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and your favorite podcast app. Copyright Notice This program was created and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza Shining a bright light on sex and disability